Amen. Hey, so I am someone who really likes the Old Testament. The Old Testament, I think, is so fun. There's so many stories in the Old Testament that are just, like, you can make so much money in Hollywood if you just made Bible movies. Like, they're so full of intrigue, and they're so full of action and just craziness. They're so much fun, but they're more than just like these interesting, exciting stories, and they're more than just this historical narrative. They're supposed to become something for us. And so there's this text, it's 1 Corinthians 10, and it says this, for I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for, the dra- for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And verse 6 says, <clears throat> Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. So the Old Testament is like this. It's as if you come into a room. As you walk into this room, you see this portrait on the wall. And the first thought that comes to your mind is, wow, what a terribly ugly person that is. And as you're looking at the portrait and you decide to get a closer look, you see that the portrait moves with you and you're like, dang it, it's a mirror. (laughs) That's what the Old Testament is supposed to be. You're supposed to look at them and go, how terrible. I cannot believe that they would do that. And then as you further investigate, you go, shoot, that's what happens in my heart every day. Paul says that the things were written there as examples for you and me, that we're supposed to look at these stories and know these stories so that when trials come and troubles come, we can know how to walk with God in faith and how to hope for the right things and how to not desire evil as the people in the Old Testament stories did. And so one of the texts that Paul references in this 1 Corinthians text is where we're going to spend our morning. It's Exodus 17. So if you have your Bible, you can turn there. This is one of my all-time favorite stories. If you know the Old Testament, there's two stories where Moses hits a rock with a staff. One is bad in Numbers, and one is good in Exodus. We're looking at the good one. So Exodus 17, starting in verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, And take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. 
And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? So in this story, here's what you have. You have the people of Israel have all of these disappointments that they've had since they've been walking with God in the, Israelite, in, in the wilderness. And all those disappointments have stacked up. And in this narrative, what you see is the people of Israel have been drawing water from the wrong source. And it's something that you and I can do as well. And so then you have to ask the question, well, how do you draw water from the true source, from the right source? That's what we're supposed to walk away with. So let's go through all those. The first one is the disappointments, they stack up. So there's no water. Who is God to these people so far? God has shown up in Israel where God demonstrated to all of the Israelites, hey, you've been in this system and in this culture that has this pantheon of gods. And they say, you trust in this God for water, you trust in this God for food, you trust in this thing to achieve this goal. And systematically what the plagues do is God shows, I am superior over all of those things. Every single one of those things bows and crumbles before me. God demonstrates his power, his authority over all of creation, over all other gods in that moment. So the Israelites would have to look at God and say, he's the true source. He's the one we could look at for hope and peace and direction, and we could put our trust in him. Well, then the Israelites leave Egypt, and they end up between a rock and a hard place. You have the Red Sea, and you have the Egyptians who change their mind. Their armies are coming to kill the Israelites. And so they're in this impossible situation, and they cry out going, okay, I guess God is going to let us die here. And so God tells Moses, hold the staff out over the water. Moses does so, and in this miraculous way that just defies nature, the Water splits in half. And more than that, the Bible says they walk through on dry ground, which means like literally the atoms, the molecules of water that were in the dirt, God parted even those. Like they are able to cross on dry ground. So something that was completely unexpected, outside of the realm of possibilities for the Israelites, God comes through and makes a way for them. And then they get to the other side and they get another problem. There's no food. Now they're in the wilderness, they're far from Egypt, and there's no food for them. So they cry out to God again, and here's what God does. Every morning, God lets a, a dew or a frost fall over the land, and that materializes into this kind of bread called manna. It's literally food from heaven. And it, the Bible tells us it's sweeter than honey. Like, this is, this is good food. And then every night, God provides quail. So God provides their every need. So what you see so far is every problem the Israelites face, every difficulty, every frustrating circumstance and situation, God is active and he provides presently and he's right there, right in front of their faces. But now, in Exodus 17, there's no water. And we're done for. God's given us up to die. This is it. Not just us, though. God's gonna let us die of thirst. My kids die of thirst. My livestock die of thirst. They're saying, we're going to lose everything. I'm going to lose my career. I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to lose all my hobbies, my way of living. I'm going to watch my kids suffer. I'm going to watch my kids die. And I'm going to waste away and die. Is this even a little bit true? Could the Israelites even say that's even a little bit true? After God, think about it this way. That morning, what did they eat? Food from heaven. And now they're thirsty and they say, God's going to let me die. Is that insanity? And you look at this text and you go, what? Truly horrible people. 
Then you go, dang it, it's a mirror. Right? That's what we do. We go, God, you're not going to come through for me when he has provided over and over and over again because the reality of it is the last time God came through for you feels like 30 years ago, even if it was 30 seconds ago. God could have provided and come through for you this morning, but as soon as difficulty and trouble comes and things seem upside down, then we go, where's God? I guess he's done with me. I guess I'm going to lose everything. It's been forever since God last came through for me, even if God came through for us this morning. Because our brains have this disproportionate way of holding on to letdowns and failure and disappointment. Our brains hold on to those things more than we hold on to blessing. We will remember failure and disappointment far more than we remember victory and we remember hope and we remember the way that God has come through for us and delivered us. You know this from even just personal relationships. It takes years to build up trust in any meaningful relationship, but it takes seconds to destroy that trust. And then if you want to rebuild that trust, it's going to take forever to try and get back to where you were before you were hurt. Someone says something to you, they criticize you, and it just destroys you. In order for you to get back to the place that you were with that person relationally, it's going to take that much more compliments and that much more good interactions, that much good more conversations before you can get back on the level that you were. If you've ever failed and you've had a, a your, your failure just sear, sears itself right into your brain and it's just there and it's present, it takes accomplishment after accomplishment in order to work that way out because our brains hold on to failure. And we do that with the Lord where one unanswered prayer, one time God didn't come through for us in the way that we wanted him to, we hold on to that and we remember that and we forget the multitudes of time that God has come through and provided and fed and answered prayer. It always feels like the last time God came through for you and me was 30 years ago, even if it was 30 seconds ago. And so how it is, is the way it feels, God's help and care was long ago and it was far away and it was unlikely. And so what do we do about that? Well, two years ago, there's a girl, her name is Amanda Eller, and she went to Hawaii with her husband on vacation, going to be there a week. This is in 2020. And they had been going on this trail, this beautiful spot in Hawaii that's this reserve. It's just this, like, I think it's 80 acres of just wilderness that's untouched. So just beautiful in Hawaii. And she tells her husband, hey, on our last day, I want to go up there and just go for a little hike and just some, spend some time in nature and meditate. And he goes, oh, that sounds great. She goes, I'm going to leave my cell phone in the car. So if you try to call me, you won't be able to get a hold of me. But when I get back to the car, I'll call you. And he goes, awesome. So she goes up. She goes this three miles from her car. And she sees this beautiful space just off the trail. So she goes off the trail and gets in this spot where she can just see how beautiful the area is. In Hawaii, man, it's just, it's just beautiful. So she's there, she meditates, she's doing her spiritual thing. And then she decides some time has gone by. Like she, as she describes, it was about five hours. And she goes, okay, my husband's probably worried. I should at least go check in. So she gets up and she starts heading in the direction that she knows the trail is. And she keeps walking and walking and walking and she doesn't find the trail. So then she goes, okay, I know my car was that way. So she starts heading towards her car. She starts walking and walking and walking. What was just a three-hour, sorry, three-mile, probably all-day experience became a 17-day fight for her life because she just got totally lost. 
She's just so stuck in the trees. She can't see where she's headed and she's walking in circles and she's going the wrong direction, getting totally mixed up. Finally, she comes up to a waterfall that she tries to climb down, falls, breaks some bones, and then has to swim brokenly until that stream leads her to a place where people can find her and give her help. And in the hospital, she was interviewed and she was so frustrated because she knew I was just three miles away from where I needed to be. Wouldn't that just be so infuriating? I know I'm so close, I just, I can't find it. And if she said, if she just had like a drone or something to just get a little bit above the trees, if she could see just a little bit above the tree line, she would know that's where my car is, that's where I have to be. And what happens with you and me is when we get into our problems and, and circumstances happen and difficulty and frustration, we get so stuck looking at the trees that we can't actually see what we're supposed to do or where we're supposed to head. And we forget the direction that God has put us on and we just think, well, I'm just gonna die here. So then the question is, how do you and I get lift? How do you and I see above the trees? Because right now we're looking at the Israelites in this story and we're above the trees. We see God came through for you in Egypt. God came through for you at the Red Sea. God fed you this morning, and now I'm looking at your story just thinking, you're terrible people. Like, you, you think God's going to kill you now? Come on. But when you're actually in the story, when you're actually in the trees, it's a very different thing, and it's easy to get lost and get mixed up and get frustrated. So how do we not do that? You have to get lift. You have to get above the trees somehow. So how do you do it when you're living it? So Jesus, in Matthew, he's got a bunch of people around him. And Jesus says, here's how you get the lift. He says, don't be anxious about anything. Not about what you're gonna eat, not what you're gonna drink, not what you're gonna wear or about your body. Just don't be anxious. I've been married for 10 years. For me personally, anxiety is not a thing. Like, that's not something I struggle with. I struggle with other things. Like, we all struggle with something. You know, just to, to, to relate, I struggle with two things pretty bad. The first one is I'm, in, I'm wildly overconfident. And the other is I'm incredibly handsome. You know, so there's, we all got struggles. We all got something. My wife, though, anxiety is a real thing. And so like any young husband, I would give the wise wisdom of Jesus. Oh, just don't be anxious. It's fixed. Problem solved, right? Is anyone here married to a man whose response to all the problems is, it's, it'll be fine. That's me. It'll be fine. Whatever, whatever problem is, it's going to work. Whatever, it'll be fine. Turns out that's not super helpful to your wife, if you didn't know. That, that, hey, that didn't work. So Jesus is saying to this group of people, hey, don't be anxious. And there's a lot of people going, I'm trying really hard. But right now I'm in the trees and I don't know how. So Jesus says, here's how you get the lift. Jesus does better than me at just saying, don't be anxious. He explains how you don't be anxious. And what he says is this. He says, look outside. In the situation of your day, when you get lost in the trees, take a break, look outside and just look at the world that God has created. Look at all of the animals that don't make any future plans for what they're gonna eat or where they're gonna sleep and what they're gonna wear and see how God daily provides and comes through for them. Look at how God clothes the trees and the grass and the flowers. Look at how God provides for all of those things and then ask yourself, does God like those things more than he likes me? Because here's how Jesus describes the kingdom of heaven. He says the kingdom of heaven is like this. It's as if you and I, or a man, walks into a field. He gets in this field, and he finds a treasure there. And the treasure, whatever it is, is so good, it's so brilliant, 
that he decides he's gonna go home and give up everything, sell everything to buy this treasure. What is everything? It's everything. So then you go, well, what was, this, what was this treasure that was so good that Jesus, the creator God, the king over all, would decide to set aside his crown, leave his throne, leave comfort, give up everything, including his own life, to purchase? Well, it's you and it's me. So Jesus is saying, when you look at all of creation, when you look outside and you see a, a sun that's 92 million miles away that God created so that you could see all that he has put in place for you to enjoy and see it's beautiful and know God loves me more than all of that. That God created all of the birds so that you can hear their songs and think about how unique and beautiful and intricate those are and think, wow, my God is so beautiful and so unique and he's created such intricate things for me to experience and to love and be interested in. Everything in all of creation, what it's supposed to do is bear witness to us that our God is so great and he's so good and everything out there, he values you more than it. So you can't be a mistake. You can't be broken. You can't be too used goods for him. He wants you. So then if you actually believe that and you put that into your mind, you retrain your brain to focus on that, it makes it a lot harder to not get lost in the weeds when things are difficult and you're thirsty and it feels like things aren't working out because you're able to go, you're able to get some lift. You're able to look above your circumstances and say, okay, God came through in A, B, C, D, E ways. I bet you today when I'm a little discomforted, when things aren't looking super good, God is going to come through for me. If your brain is not retrained and you don't make a conscious, a, man, I can't say conscious. It's because I hit my head and went unconscious. If you don't make a true effort to do this every single day, to retrain the way that you think with just the minutia of life, all the little stuff, look at what God has done for me, then what's gonna happen is when difficulty comes, God's providence will feel like it's 30 years away, even if it was 30 minutes away. And you and I will feel like disappointments that happened 30 years ago, they'll linger and they'll feel present and they'll be right in front of us. And it's gonna cause us to constantly freak out and those disappointments will stack up like they did for the Israelites. So what happened is the Israelites' disappointments stacked up and part of that was because they were drawing from the wrong source, which is something you and I can do as well. So they were drawing from the wrong source. The people come to Moses and they're livid. They are thirsty, they're uncomfortable, they're super upset about it. And all the other times in the wilderness experience where you see God's people upset, they, they bicker, they, um, they grumble, they're just irritable. Like there's all these different words. This is a unique story where it uses this word quarreled. So you have to take it from the Hebrew to the English and go, well, why is this so different? It's a very aggressive term. It's they're aggressively bringing charges out against Moses and against God saying, you did this. You intentionally brought us here to die. You did this to kill us, to kill our kids, to kill our, our, our animals, which really when they're saying you're going to kill our animals, they're saying you're taking everything of meaning to me. My job, that's my resource, that's my hobby, that's where I spend my time. Those are the things that I love that are outside of my family. You're stripping me of everything. You don't care about me at all. And it's so serious as these people are coming together, it's becoming such an aggressive, tense moment that Moses is sure these people are gonna kill me. And if you put yourself in the Israelite's shoes, I'm sure you could see yourself doing the same exact thing. Because I've had three kids so far get the flu. 
And the first time, as a parent, you know, when your kid gets a kind of sickness that they don't understand and you can't do anything to help them, it's just miserable. When you're watching your kids and they're sick and they don't get it and they want you to help them and you just can't, it just breaks your heart. And so these people, they're watching their kids just suffer and they're getting angrier and angrier and reasonably so. I can see myself getting angry. And so it makes you ask, okay, why did God lead them here in the first place? Because God was leading them and God brought them to this place in particular. So isn't it God's fault that they're thirsting and, and thinking this way? Here's what God was doing in them and demonstrating for you and me. God wants a group of people who are utterly dependent upon him. The whole idea of a desert is there is no other source of water. There's nowhere else where you're gonna be able to quench your thirst. And he wants people that would turn to him when they get thirsty and not to other things. In Jeremiah 2, John does, in Jeremiah 2, God does an evaluation of his people. And in Jeremiah 2, God says this, my people have forsaken me. They have hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What God is saying is we all have this propensity to dig out for ourselves sources of water. Sources of ways to, to quench the thirst that's forever in our souls of this is what makes me significant. This is what gives my life meaning and purpose. This is what makes me matter. This is where I get my happiness and my joy from. And it could be good things, you know, like hobbies and relationships. It could be your bank account. It could be your spouse. It could be the, the, your career. It could be any number of good things. They're not bad things. But when we get our joy and our meaning and our significance from them, what you end up finding is they're broken cisterns. They leak. They won't be able to forever sustain the thirst that your soul in neatly has because your soul is built to be filled by something greater than that that nothing of this earth could ever really fill or, or, or satisfy. And so at some point, everyone ends up in a desert. Everyone ends up in a situation where those things that we derived our meaning from or our self-worth from, they dry up and they go away. And so if you have that as your only source of thirst, you're gonna find yourself like the Israelites. I have no meaning anymore. I have no purpose. I've been brought here to die. And so I know I overuse these illustrations, but I think they're so good. You look at great people who achieved the things that we think give meaning in life and significance. So like Kurt Cobain, the singer of Nirvana. He had the Midas touch. Everything he did turned to gold. If you go to RCC and you study music, one of the test questions will be, who was the father of modern rock music? And it's Kurt Cobain. Like he is, when you think of rock star, we derive that image from who he was. And that's what he wanted to be. That's what's gonna satisfy him. That's what gives him meaning. This is who I am. He achieved it. And what he found is it's like drinking salt water. That every achievement, every accolade, every approval, every award just made him thirstier for more and for more and for more until he couldn't take it and he took his own life. You look at John D. Rockefeller, the world's first billionaire. He was asked, now that you have more money than anyone else, what do you want? He said, all I want is just one more dollar. It's like salt water. You see that? I just need more and more and more. And this is my favorite one because everyone loves, loves Jim Carrey, right? We're heading in towards Christmas, Christmas time when we're going to be thinking about Jim Carrey a lot because he's the Christmas guy because the Grinch. Is that too long ago? I don't know. But Jim Carrey got one of the greatest awards of his life. Like if you're an actor to get a Golden Globe is like, wow, 
So this is a defining moment for him, and it's his third one. So he goes up to get his awards. He got two in one night. And he said, I am no longer Jim Carrey, but I am three-time Golden Globe award-winning Jim Carrey. And everyone kind of laughs. He goes, when I go home, it won't be Jim Carrey who goes home. It will be three-time Golden Globe award-winning Jim Carrey who goes home. And when I brush my teeth, it won't be Jim Carrey brushing his teeth. It will be three-time Golden Globe award-winning Jim Carrey who brushes his teeth. And when I go to bed, it won't be Jim Carrey who goes to bed. It will be three-time Golden Globe award-winning Jim Carrey who goes to bed and dreams about becoming four-time Golden Globe award-winning Jim Carrey. That's what he shared for his acceptance speech. In the moment of achieving the thing that for most people sitting in that room would say, oh, if I could just have that, then I would have made it. Then I would have mattered. Then I would have become something. He says, yeah, even in this moment, I know I need more. And I'm gonna go home and I'm gonna long for more because this cistern, this well, it's broken, it's leaky, it runs dry. And so God needed to demonstrate for them and for you and for me that when deserts come and they do come, that we need a source of water, of fulfillment, of significance, of life in something more sustainable. We need to be utterly dependent upon God, the only one who could truly satisfy the thirst that's innately in our souls. And so here's what God did. You see it in verse six. He says, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. Here's what God did. He provided water in the most unlikely place. If you're in a desert and you're desperately looking for water, are you gonna look somewhere down low or are you gonna look on top of a rock? Probably somewhere down low, right? But it's in this most unlikely, this hard, this difficult place that God's water flows out of and the people are able to drink. Sometimes we go into desert situations and things are difficult and things are hard and things are frustrating, but it's in the hardest, most difficult places where you're able to really find God's grace and you're able to really taste of it, and you're able to really experience it and have it really move and change you. And so this desert place that God has these people come, what he wants to them to see is until you get into a troubled spot, all of us, we, we will innately be drawing source of, sources of water from other things. Your resume, your accomplishments, your career, your assets, your bank account, your spouse, all those good things innately will be drawing water from them, but it's not until you actually get into the desert when things get troubled, when those things don't give you life and don't give you joy and aren't fulfilling you. It's not until you get into that really, really hard space when all other sources of water run dry that you learn you must draw on the joy of God. And Corey Ten Boom, she was in a she hid Jews in her house during World War II and then she got found out and she got brought to a concentration camp. She truly lost everything. And she brilliantly said when she got out of that, it's not until God is all that you have until that you learn that God is all you truly need. So she's saying, I found that source of life and meaning and fulfillment in the desert where there was nothing else when all other sources of water had run dry. And so if this season, it just feels like you're in a desert, all the sources of life and joy and meaning have gone away from you, it might be that God is bringing you to a place that you can truly experience his grace in such a way that you go, oh, that's where I get my meaning from. That's where I get my significance from. That's where I get my direction in life and my fulfillment. 
So the people, they're drawing water from the wrong source, but then God allows them to draw water from the true source. Let's say that you're in that spot. How do you get the true water? You acknowledge there's other areas where you could get the wrong sources of water. How do you get the true source of water? So here's what happened. It starts in verse five. God says, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in sight of the elders of Israel. So God says, go, get the elders of Israel. The elders of Israel were all the people that they would get direction and wisdom. They helped kept the peace amongst neighbors. They were all the people in the community that you would look up to and say, they have authority. These are people that we all respect that when they, when they speak, it matters. God says, go get all of them. Go wrangle all of them up and go get the staff with which you struck the Nile, which the staff was just a stick. Moses had this stick. God said, hey, you're gonna bring that stick up to Pharaoh. I'm gonna demonstrate my power and my authority over all creation. I'm greater than everything else that he could be subservient to. You bring that stick and I'll prove it through that. Over the Red Sea, you're gonna lift it up and it will part. And so what it is, is this stick is just a stick and it serves no other function than being a stick. Just like a judge's gavel is just a, a cute little hammer that kids can play with, but when it's in the hand of a judge, it represents all the authority and all of the power and the ability to administer justice and judgment that's been granted to him through the state. So when Moses grabs that staff, what it's demonstrating is he has all of the authority and all of the power to administer justice and judgment given over to him from God. So the Israelites have been quarreling in such a way Moses is in fear for his life and God says, okay, go get all the elders together and go grab the rod of judgment and let's have a court meeting. And so if you're in this situation and you see all this happening and you were one of the people maybe being more loud, which tends to be my scenario, you're probably thinking, this is bad for me. This is definitely when I die. Like, I thought I was going to die from thirst. It turns out I'm going to die right now. That's what you're thinking. As you're looking at this story, you're supposed to go, it's a mirror. That the Bible tells you and me that all have fallen short of the glory of God, that all have sinned, and the wages of sin is death. And we look at that and we go, if God was to be just, and if the rod of judgment and justice and righteousness were to come down, I'm one of the people who should be stricken because I'm just like these people. I get all spun out in my circumstances and let my difficulties and my frustrations all stack up. And I get my source of water from anything and everything possible other than God. And then I get frustrated at God when things don't turn out my way. I'm one of these people. This doesn't look good for me. But here's the fascinating thing. This is the most interesting part of this text. God says, I will stand before you on the rock and you will strike the rock, and out of that rock will come water that all can drink. In all ancient texts, it's always the case that it's the, the smaller stood before the greater. The officer stood before the general. The peasant stood before the king. The accused stood before the judge. It's always the small stood before the great. God says, I will stand before you on the rock, and you will strike the rock. What is God saying there? 
God is saying these people have sinned and there must be judgment and there must be justice for that. And when the rod of judgment and justice comes down to pay for sin, I will make myself small and I will take the brunt of the judgment. You will hit me and out of me will flow this water that all can freely drink from even though they don't deserve it. And for the Israelites, they would go, what a weird day this was, right? I woke up, God made me food, that was great. God didn't make me the coffee I wanted, so I got really, really mad. Moses went up, he hit a rock and water came out. This was a weird day because they don't get the full story. What is the significance of this? This is just the strangest one-off for them. But Jesus, he clears up the whole picture. Jesus explains what it means. And you see it in John 7, 37. Jesus, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart, will flow rivers of living water. He's saying you and I can come to Jesus and you and I can gift that water that we've been longing for in our souls and it will utterly transform you to where not only do you get satisfied and you can find the life and the meaning and the fulfillment and the joy and the happiness that you've been searching your whole life for, but you can actually become a conduit for it. That other people through you can come to know Jesus as their source of true water and they can then become a conduit for it for other people and it just explodes. It becomes something beautiful. And you go, well, I want that, but how do I get that? Because for Moses, he hit a physical rock and physical water came out and they could physically drink. How do I partake in this water? How is it available to me? Jesus says, come to me and drink, but you think, how? Well, here's how. Jesus shows us in John 19, 31. Since it was the day of preparation... And so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. And 1 Corinthians 10, 4, where we started today says, and the rock was Christ. The story is this, that Jesus made himself small, stood before the rod of justice and judgment and righteousness and took all the brunt of our sin. And out of him flowed water that is accessible to you and me freely, not because we've done the right thing or said the right things or, or are brilliant or strong enough. We've done everything wrong and we deserve death. That's how you come to Jesus and it's available freely to you to give you life, to give you purpose, to help you direct you and your families and your hobbies and your career. It can, it's supposed to change everything. Jesus says you can come to him and drink. And so just to quickly recap, does it feel like the last time God came through for you was 30 years ago? If it does, Jesus says it's time to retrain your brain. Look at the minutia of life, all the things that God daily provides and does. It's all a display so you can see my father is so great and so good, and he loves me infinitely more than all of this. There's absolutely no way I can look at myself and say I'm ugly, 
I'm broken, I'm unwanted, I'm a mistake, I'm lost. You cannot. Jesus says, retrain your brain. You may not look at yourself that way. You are of infinite more value than you could ever imagine that creator God would set aside his crown and give himself for you and for me to purchase us. Are you, do you feel like you're in a desert time? It just feels like all sources of life and joy and meaning have just been displaced from your life. And it just feels like this is a grind, this is a struggle, I'm thirsting to death. God, why is this happening to me? It's in the hardest spots when all other sources of water dry up that we can finally learn to depend on God the way that we are created to. And this might be a time when God wants you to turn to him and say, okay, I want to know you as my true source of life, my true source of meaning, my true source of who I am as a person, my significance. I want you to be that for me, Jesus. And then finally, are you thirsty? Are you trying to find joy and fulfillment and happiness and meaning in anything and everything? Are you deriving it from your bank account, your spouse, your relationships, your responsibilities, your career? Those are all good things, but ultimately they have to fail you because they're broken cisterns, they're leaky, and they're like salt water. The more and more and more you try to make it give you meaning and significance, the more it's gonna draw from you because it can never do that for you. It can never be the thing that you need it to be. Jesus is able to give you life and life abundantly, and it's available freely for all through Jesus. And we remember this every Sunday as we take communion. As you take communion, it's broken up into two parts. You've got the bread, you've got the manna, you've got a gift from heaven that you can eat. And it's not because you and I did anything that we get to taste and see that the Lord is good. It's freely offered for all to take. There were people who woke up some mornings in the Israelite camp who were just ticked off and didn't feel like trusting in God and didn't have a whole lot of faith that God was gonna come through for the day. But God provides because it's not about the quality of your and my faith, but it's the object of our faith. That God comes through, God provides, you and I are able to take and eat, taste and see that the Lord is good. And then after that, you and I are able to drink and become cleansed, that we can drink of the living water that came at the cost of Jesus's blood on the cross that the water that we're able to freely drink is mixed in with Jesus's blood, that we can taste the freedom that we are able to receive because of the judgment that was poured out upon Jesus.